Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that. We've already had that in the scripture reading, but let's read it one more time. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, let's pray. Father, would you grant an anointing upon your word today? And as we seek to really understand something from your word about the Sabbath, would you give us clarity? I pray that you would dispel confusion and darkness and give us clarity to understand this issue from your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's, this morning, take up a very controversial subject. The subject of the Sabbath has been a controversial subject for the last 2,000 years. Here in America, in the 1600s, the Puritans would enact laws against Sabbath breaking. In fact, they would actually find somebody or they would have him publicly whipped if he broke the Sabbath. Now, to us, that sounds very strange. But back in that particular day, that was a normal part of the society and the culture. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists have a very strong teaching on the Sabbath. They believe that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast and that all people who participate in Sunday worship will have their part in the lake of fire. Very strong teaching. You have other groups, many Reformed groups, who believe that the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week, Sunday. And if they, they feel so strongly about that particular that teaching that they won't have fellowship or work together with other churches, even though they may agree with 99% of everything else, this one issue causes them to divide over those other groups. So you can see this issue of the Sabbath has become a pretty pretty controversial subject, and it's also very important to many different Christian groups. So what we want to do this morning is we want to take a look at this subject and see if we can get some understanding on it. Uh, I'll let the cat out of the bag at the beginning. I believe Christ is our Sabbath, and that the Sabbath was leading up to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So there's three views of the Sabbath. There's a Seventh-day view, that's the Seventh-day Adventist and the Seventh-day Baptists, view. There is the Christian Sabbath view, which is the view that the Sabbath has been changed from the seventh to the first day of the week. And then there is the New Covenant view, which is the view I hold. And that's the view that Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and that we find its fulfillment as we rest in Jesus from our works and find everything in Him. Now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the Sabbath first before the law, that is the Mosaic law, we're going to look at the Sabbath under the Mosaic Law, and then we're going to look at the Sabbath under the New Covenant. So three different categories of time. So from Genesis 1 to Exodus 16 would be the first category. Exodus 16 to Malachi 4 would be the second category, and then all the New Testament would be the third. There's been a lot of heat when it comes to this issue. We want to get some light, and hopefully God will give us some today. So, Genesis chapter 2, let's start there. Genesis chapter 2. Now, what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is very interesting. It's very interesting what it, it exactly does say and what it does not say. In Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and then on the seventh day, because his work was completed, he rested. That's basically what we have in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Interestingly, this is the only place in the first 2,400 years of church history where the Sabbath is even mentioned. And in fact, it's not mentioned because the word Sabbath doesn't come up. But the concept of the Sabbath does come up because the word Sabbath means rest. And here, twice, we're told in Genesis chapter 2 that God rested on the seventh day. But apart from this one 
situation here, these first three verses in Genesis chapter 2, there is no other mention until we get to Exodus 16 of anything about the Sabbath. In addition, we have no record of anybody keeping the Sabbath for the first 2,400 years. We don't find Adam or Eve or Enoch or Noah or Abel or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph, or anybody else, or Melchizedek, <laughs> nobody. In the whole book of Genesis, and in the first 16 chapters of Exodus, there's, there's no record, no example, no model at all. And so why have people uh, taken this idea that all of us, all of mankind, must take one day in seven, specifically the seventh day, and rest from their works on that particular day? Why has that happened? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, you'll see a couple of words there. Verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified. Blessed, sanctified. Those are the two words. And we pack all kinds of stuff into those two words. People say, look right there, Genesis 2.3 says that God blessed and sanctified it. That must mean that God set apart the seventh day from creation in which he commands all men throughout the world to rest from their labors on that day. Well, the only problem is it doesn't say any of that. <laughs> we, we have to inject the words blessed and sanctified with all of that other meaning. But Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, and certain Reformed people say this is God's unchanging moral law for all people of all time. That means if anybody... Throughout history, no matter who you are, does not take either the seventh day or the first day, depending on your view, and rest from your labors on that day, you are guilty of a moral law, a breach of one of the Ten Commandments, which is sin. So this is what I want to, to talk to you about today and see if we can get some light on it. God has given certain commandments in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, actually, let's not go to 26. Let's go to Genesis 1, 28. There is a command there. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule. So there's a clear command. Be fruitful, multiply, and rule. Or Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Those are clear commands. We come to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and there isn't any command. So why would we make Genesis 2, 1 to 3 about God resting into a command for people when there's no command that God gave to people and there's no example of anybody keeping that particular command. This is all we have. This is all the biblical information we have before the law was given. So, let's go to the second section of history. That is, what does the Bible teach about the Sabbath under the Mosaic Law? The Mosaic Law is simply the law that God gave through and to Moses. Okay, we need to start in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, verses 22 to 26. The people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. Now they're traveling through the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And it says in verse 22, Now on the sixth day... They gather twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered. And it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today or today, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So here's the very first time that anything is mentioned about the Sabbath, and especially about people keeping the Sabbath. This is the first time that's mentioned. And I want you to notice a couple of things in this 
this passage. First of all, they went out to gather on the sixth day, and they found twice as much lying around than they did on any other day. And so they picked it all up, and they took it back, and they were confused. Why, why did we get so much uh, manna? Manna was God's bread that he sent from heaven to feed them as they're traveling through this wilderness. I said it wrong, didn't I? No, no, you said it right. You just left that part out. So oh, okay. When did you gather? Okay. Thank you. So he's, they're gathering their bread to eat. And, and on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much of that manna as they did on any other day. And they go, why is this happening? Why did God, God send us so much more manna on the sixth day? So they go and they talk to Moses about it. And Moses explains to them the situation. He says, this is what the Lord meant. The word meant literally means spoke. This is what the Lord spoke. And evidently the Lord had spoken to Moses and told him what was going to happen and told him that this Sabbath day needed to be observed. And so he relays the information to all the children of Israel. God told me that tomorrow is going to be a Sabbath observance. Everyone is supposed to rest. So you gather twice as much manna today so you don't have to gather any of it tomorrow. And then he ends up here in verse 26 by saying, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So Moses had to explain to the children of Israel about the Sabbath. Evidently, this was new revelation to them. They, they, the whole idea of the Sabbath was a new idea. They had to be taught that they weren't supposed to gather it on the seventh day, but they gathered twice as much on the sixth day. Okay? Now, let's... Uh, and before we move on to another passage in Exodus, I want to read to you from the book of Nehemiah, which gives us a really interesting insight. It's Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, so you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You see what he says there in verse 14? You made known to them your holy Sabbath. When did he make it known? Verse 13. When he came down on Mount Sinai. In other words, it was right after the exodus from Egypt that God made known his holy and just ordinances, one of which was his holy Sabbath. So this was made known to them at this particular time. Evidently, it was not made known to them before that. It was something new. They were discovering it as God gave this revelation that this is what he wanted them to observe. So that's what we find here in Exodus chapter 16. Now go over to chapter 20, and we're going to take a look at a list of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But I want you to see specifically the commandment concerning the Sabbath. It starts in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughters, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what do we find here? I'll tell you what certain people find here. They say, well, this is a list of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are all moral laws given by God. And they're for all people of all time. They say, we're still under the Ten Commandments, just like they were under the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are all moral. In other words, it was wrong, morally, to commit murder. It was wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to disobey your father and mother. In the same way that it's wrong to do all those things, it's also morally wrong to break the Sabbath. So that's the way many people look at this. I don't look at it that way. And as we go through, I'll, I'll show you why. But what I do want you to see is what exactly God commanded in the fourth commandment. He commanded them not to do any work, right? They were to rest from their work. Their men servants, their female servants, nobody was to work on this one particular day. The fourth commandment has nothing to say about worshiping publicly on the Sabbath, right? He doesn't say you're supposed to gather together, you're supposed to have a holy convocation, 
you're supposed to have someone preach my law. There's nothing about that at all. The only thing that's said is that you're supposed to stop working. But the different theories that we have out today, most of them have something to do with public worship or assembling on the Sabbath day. We have to agree that that wasn't what God revealed. We've added that in. Humans have added that idea in. It's not here in the text. So I just wanted you to see that. Now, let's keep going further, and let's take a look at Exodus 31. This is really interesting. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. What was the Sabbath supposed to be for them? A sign. So what's a sign? If you're driving down the street and you see that sign that says stop. Directing you. Yes, it's something that directs you to, some, to something that's greater than it. The reality of that sign is you are supposed to stop. So the sign points you to do something. It's a it's a it's pointing towards something that's a reality behind that sign. It's in fact in the book of Revelation chapter one, it says that the angel came and showed John through signs what must shortly take place. A sign is a symbol of something greater than it. God said to Moses that the Sabbaths were a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Let's keep reading, verse 14. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations. Notice this next line. As a perpetual covenant. The Sabbath was to be a perpetual covenant. It is a sign. He repeats again this idea. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Who is the sign between? God and Israel. Very clear. He doesn't say it's a sign between me and all the peoples of the earth forever. It's between God and the sons of Israel, the Jewish people, forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So the Sabbath is a sign. It is a symbol for a greater reality. It can even stand for the covenant. He says it is a perpetual covenant. So what we have here, the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant that God gave through Moses to the children of Israel for the period of time, starting at Mount Sinai, ending when Jesus dies and resurrects from the dead, because then the new covenant is established. So it is a covenant sign for the old covenant, the covenant that starts in Exodus chapter 16 through 20, right in there, and ends when Jesus rises from the dead. That's what we have. Now, interestingly, he keeps saying, if anyone breaks this covenant, if, if anyone profanes the Sabbath, what happens to them? They die. He said, well, that's a pretty harsh uh, execution for someone going out and doing a little work on one day out of seven. I mean, what's up with this? But if you realize that for someone to profane the covenant sign was actually to profane the covenant to reject the sign was to reject the covenant behind the sign. Let me give you an example. If a woman takes off her wedding ring and throws it down at the feet of her husband and walks out the door, slamming the door behind her, what has she just been saying to him? Divorce. Want a divorce? It's over. This marriage is through. I'm done. Well, when they went out and worked on the Sabbath, it was like taking off their wedding ring. They were taking the sign and they were saying, I treat this as profane, of no value. I don't want to be in covenant with God anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. Remember, there, there are signs for almost every covenant in the Bible. God made a covenant with Noah. Remember that one? He said, never again will I destroy the earth 
with a flood, and he gave a sign. Do you remember what it was? The rainbow. God made a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember what the sign was for that covenant? Circumcision. God made a covenant with us, the new covenant, through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And there is a sign for that. Do you know what it is? It's the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus said, this blood and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, the only sign, or the only covenant I can recall that didn't have a sign was the Davidic covenant, where God made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would always sit on his throne. And that referred to Jesus ruling from the throne of David over his people. So every covenant almost that I can think of in the Bible has a sign. And whenever you profane that covenant or or reject the sign that's associated with that covenant, God threatens with death. Back in Genesis chapter 17, God said, If any one of you is not circumcised, every male child of the son of Abraham, he is to be cut off from his people. In fact, do you remember when Moses was going to Egypt in order to to speak to the Pharaoh to lead God's people out of Egypt? Do you remember a really weird, strange incident that God met him on the way and was seeking to put Moses to death? Exodus chapter 4, if you want to read about this later. It's verse 22 to 26. And Zipporah, who is Moses' wife, do you remember what she did? She took a flint... And she circumcised her Moses' son, and then she blamed Moses. She said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And we go, what in the world is going on here? Well, evidently, God had called Moses to deliver God's people from Egypt, but Moses had been disobedient. He hadn't circumcised his own son. How could he go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, but yet he was being disobedient to the covenant that God had placed him under? And so it may have been that he and Zipporah had had an argument over this. Zipporah didn't want him to be circumcised, and Moses did. But to keep peace in the family, he said, okay, let's just kind of pretend that one doesn't exist. But then God meets him on the way, intends to put him to death, and Zipporah knows exactly why. And she knows what she has to do so that Moses is not killed. And so she takes out the flint, circumcises her son, and then blames Moses. You're a bridegroom of blood to me. But here, God was going to kill Moses because he he was not taking the covenant seriously. He wasn't taking the covenant sign seriously. Or, go to the New Testament. There we have the New Covenant. What do we find happening in 1 Corinthians 11 when people are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Some are sick and some have died because of that. God takes his covenant seriously, and if we profane them or ignore them or reject them, God deals with us harshly, sometimes to the point of death. Okay, so hopefully that, that helps us to kind of understand why this harsh penalty. Now, also consider this. Yes, the Sabbath commandment was one of the Ten Commandments, but notice where it's located in the list of that ten. It's number four. But as you're reading through Exodus chapter 20, you'll notice that it's right smack dab in the middle of all of them. And it takes up almost 40% of the entire... There's 155 Hebrew words. Uh, 55 of those deal with the Sabbath commandment. Now, why would God spend so much time putting this one right in the middle? Do you know why? Because it was... Here, uh, the Ten Commandments are the the covenant document or the covenant charter. And the Sabbath commandment was that particular commandment that dealt with that covenant as a whole. It was the sign of the covenant. So God places great importance on the sign of this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And he also threatens with death anybody that would break it. And we're going to read later on that someone does break it and he's actually executed for picking up sticks on the uh, seventh day of the week. Okay, let's move forward then. Well, before we do that, let me show you one other scripture. Exodus 34, verse 28. So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat bread or drink water, and he wrote on the tablet the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So here... The Ten Commandments are referred to as the covenant. 
And back in Exodus chapter 31, the Sabbath is referred to as the covenant. Because the Sabbath was simply that official part of this covenant document that pointed to the sign of that covenant. Okay, now we can move forward. Um, Numbers chapter 15. Verse 32. Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody, notice this, because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Evidently, the people didn't know what to do when someone broke the Sabbath. Now it says back in Exodus chapter 31 that he would be put to death. Either they had forgotten that or it didn't register with them. But here they were confused. What do we do? Now, my question is, if God instituted the Sabbath for all people on the face of the earth for all time, way back in Genesis chapter 2, wouldn't they know what to do when someone broke it? Would they have to go 2,400 years and then finally God tells them what to do if they broke that Sabbath? It doesn't make any sense, does it? If God is going to give a law, surely he'll give uh, the how to enforce that particular law and the penalty for breaking that law. Well, here... And also Exodus 31, he gives that same penalty, which is death. And they actually did go through and they executed him. Now go over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have the Ten Commandments being repeated. They were given at Sinai, at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, And then years later, God repeated those Ten Commandments for the children of Israel. And it's very interesting to notice the subtle differences between the first time he gave them and the second time he gave them. So, pick up in verse 2. Deuteronomy 5, verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all of those who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Now notice, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He didn't make it with our forefathers. He made it with us. And we're going to see that part of the covenant he's describing here is the Sabbath commandment, which we find starting in verse 12. So God did not give the Sabbath commandment as part of this covenant with the forefathers. He says he gave it to them at Horeb, He made it with us, not them. Which must mean that the Sabbath, which is part of that covenant, was never given until we come to um, Exodus chapter 16. Well, take a look at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So what's the reason that they were to observe the Sabbath day? their redemption from Egypt. Because God is your Redeemer, then set apart one day in seven to rest and acknowledge Him. What was the reason God gave in the Ten Commandments originally, the first time, for keeping the Sabbath? Anybody remember? No, He gave a particular reason just like this one, but it was a different reason. Yes. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. So the first time God gives the Ten Commandments, he says the reason you're supposed to keep the Sabbath is because 
I am your creator. The second time he gives it, he says, it's because I am your redeemer. Both of those are reasons to enforce the children of Israel to keep the Sabbath day. God created you. God has redeemed you. But notice, if one of the reasons that they were supposed to keep the Sabbath day was because God had redeemed them from Egypt, that means that nobody could have kept the Sabbath before they were redeemed from Egypt. That means that prior to Exodus 16, nobody could have kept it. Because the reason they were supposed to keep it is because God was their redeemer. Well, he wasn't their redeemer until Exodus around verse 14, 15. Do you follow that? No? Yeah. <laughs> you do? Okay. Okay, if you don't tell me, then I'll try to say it some other way. Okay, so that's what Deuteronomy 5 tells us. Now, what I want you to notice also is what is never said in the Old Testament. We never find any statement in the Old Testament where God gave the Sabbath to any nation other than Israel. It's not there. Uh, we find God judging nations like, well, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We find him judging the nation of Assyria. He didn't judge Sodom and Gomorrah for Sabbath breaking. He judged them for homosexuality, and he judged them for their selfishness. We find him judging the nation of Assyria, but it wasn't for Sabbath breaking. It was for their pride and their arrogance. In fact, as you work your way through the Old Testament, you'll never find God judging any nation other than Israel for Sabbath breaking. It's just not there. We also never read that God judged... um, I'm sorry, I was just going to repeat what I just said, so forget that line. Let's summarize real quickly what we've learned about the Sabbath so far. We've learned that God himself rested on the seventh day. He blessed that day, and he sanctified it, which means he set it apart. He reserved a day, and then finally, when we get to Exodus chapter 16, he does something with the day that he had already sanctified back at creation. He sets it apart for his covenant people. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant that God gave through Moses for the children of Israel. And they were to rest on that day. Nothing is said about worship. We know that it was new revelation because Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14 says that God revealed the Holy Sabbath to God's people. And also because the children of Israel didn't know what to do on that day, Moses had to explain to them about the manna being doubled on the sixth day so they would rest on the seventh. So there's many different uh, indicators as we work our way through the passages of the Old Testament to show us this was something new. People didn't understand it before. And it was something new that God gave to his people for a a particular purpose, to show that he was creator and he was redeemer. Now let's go to the New Testament, and let's see what we can learn from that. So go with me to the New Testament. A lot of people look to the example of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth, and they say, well, Jesus kept the Sabbath, so so we should keep the Sabbath. Now think about that with me for a minute. First of all, how did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Do you remember? What would he do on the seventh day? Yeah, he'd go to the synagogue. And usually he'd preach. He'd get up and preach on the in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But he, the Old Testament Sabbath talked not about preaching or attending the synagogue or going to worship. It talked about resting. But even if we did know that Jesus rested on the Sabbath throughout his entire life, and he probably did because he kept the law, even if we knew that were to be true, that wouldn't tell us anything because Jesus was living under the old covenant. The new covenant was not inaugurated until he died and rose again. Jesus offered animal sacrifices. Jesus was circumcised. Jesus kept the Jewish feasts and festivals. Does that mean that we should offer animal sacrifices? that we should still get circumcised, that we should participate in the Jewish feasts and festivals. I don't think so. In fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament we are not to be circumcised in order to gain some kind of entrance into God's kingdom. That's what the whole Jerusalem council was over in Acts chapter 15. We're not to offer animal sacrifices because Christ has the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. So what we find is that even if Jesus did that, it wouldn't mean anything for us. We have to decide what is normative based not on the life of Christ, but on the New Testament epistles, because there the apostles take the truth of Jesus Christ and they apply it specifically for New Covenant 
Christians. So let's do that. Let's go to the books of oh, Romans through Jude, and let's see if there's anything written about the Sabbath on those particular days, um, in those particular letters, and let's see what it has to say. And there are four different references in the New Testament epistles to days or holy days and how we should view them. The first is Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. Now here in verses 5 and 6 he talks about special days. One person regards one day above another. That must have referred to Jewish believers in the first century who were entrenched in the idea of Sabbath keeping because they kept it their entire life. And so when they came to Christ, they kept the seventh day above all other days. And they rested on that day. But other Gentiles came into the kingdom and they treated every day alike. So what does Paul say? You Gentiles, you need to start keeping the seventh day just like your Jewish brothers. No, he says, let every person be fully convinced in his own mind. So you Gentiles, you need to be fully convinced that what you're doing is honoring to the Lord. And you Jewish believers, you need to do the same thing. And then he says, if you're the person who's observing that day, he's observing it unto the Lord. So don't judge him. If one person wants to take the seventh day and set it aside and rest on that day and he does it for the Lord, praise God. Let him do it. He's doing it unto the Lord. But if somebody else doesn't have that same conviction, he shouldn't be judged by the one who does. You, do you read that? We're not to treat with contempt the one who does one thing, and we're not to judge one who does something else. We're to accept each other in these debatable, questionable issues. Let every man be fully convinced before the Lord, and just let him do it as unto the Lord. And God is glorified in that. So that's the first thing we see about reference to a day. The next one is in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Paul says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things? to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now he talks about days, months, seasons, and years. The days would have been Sabbath days. The months would have been the new moons. That's a Jewish ritual associated with the new moon or the month. Uh, the seasons. That would have been the various festivals that the children of Israel observed, like Pentecost and Passover and unleavened bread. And then years. There was uh, Sabbath years. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. And then every 50 years was a Jubilee year. So the Jews observed days, months, seasons, and years. Now, how does Paul view those things? Well, verse 9, he calls them weak and worthless elemental things. They're weak. They're worthless. They're elemental and he says, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. It doesn't seem like he has a very positive view of Gentiles trying to go back to the Jewish Old Testament law. He says, you're going to get enslaved by that. Those are weak things. They're worthless. They're elemental. You don't want to be enslaved, do you? What are you doing? And he says in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. In other words, if these people go back to the Jewish law, and try to seek to gain their righteousness 
through observing Jewish law, he says, I fear that all of the work I've spent on you is in vain. You're trusting in something other than the gospel. You're trusting, trusting in your uh, Jewish law-keeping to be right before God. So Paul does not have a real positive view of keeping Sabbath days or any other day. In the New Testament, we find that all days are holy to the Lord. There's not any particular day, even Christmas and Easter. <laughs> we don't have any days of the New Testament that are regarded as more holy than any other day. Okay, let's go over to Colossians now. The book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, Colossians 2. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Notice how he repeats all of those ideas again. New moon, festival, Sabbath day. Don't let anybody judge you when it comes to these things, he says. Verse 17, things which are a mere shadow. Oh, that word is so important. These were a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to who? Christ. Do you remember the Sabbath was a sign? That means it was a shadow. It was a picture of something bigger, something better. He says right here what that was a shadow of. It was Jesus Christ. The new moons were a shadow of Christ. The festivals were a shadow of Christ. Whenever we go through the book of Exodus or Leviticus and we look at the festivals, God willing, one day we'll do that. We're going to see Jesus in all of those things. He was pictured and portrayed all the way through the Old Testament. He's the main subject of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But what I want you to see here is the word therefore in verse 16. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Now, what does the word therefore go back to? Whenever you read the word therefore, find out what is therefore, right? <laughs> it's always the culmination of something he's already said. So go back in your Bibles to verse 14. Here we're speaking about what Christ accomplished at the cross. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What were these decrees that were hostile to us? The Ten Commandments. The law. The Old Covenant law. Therefore, because Jesus canceled out the law through his death by fulfilling the law, because that law was nailed to his cross, therefore don't let anyone judge you about that Old Covenant law. You're not even under the Old Covenant. Why do you let somebody judge you? Whether you keep the Old Covenant, you're not under that covenant. You're under the New Covenant. Why don't you find out what the will of God is under the new covenant and keep that focus on glorifying God through the new covenant will of God rather than the old covenant law. So here's Paul's teaching on the Sabbath in the New Testament. Don't let anybody judge you. If you want to keep the seventh day, you can do that if you want to. Just don't seek to find your righteousness through it. You won't be any more righteous to God if you keep the seventh day than if you keep the first day or if you keep no day. You're righteous in Christ. You're righteous through faith. Do you possess faith, saving faith in the Savior? Then you're justified. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves, right? I'm trying to remember those four G's this morning. <laughs> we are already justified in the sight of God through the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Now, there is one other place that talks about the Sabbath in the New Testament epistles, and it's the book of Hebrews. So let's go there. The book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, Paul keeps referring to the rest, this rest for the people of God. And he uses two figures, two types, to portray this rest. He uses the land of Canaan as one of those, and he uses the Sabbath as the second. And he keeps showing us that these were pictures of a rest that remains for the people of God. And he winds up, in verse 10 and 11. Well, let's start in verse 9. Hebrews 4, 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let's find out what that Sabbath rest is. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So, there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and it has to do 
with believers resting from their works. Well, when does that happen? When you put your faith in Christ, right? When you say, I'm not going to try to earn my salvation. I can't. I'm, not, I'm going to stop trying to work in order for God to accept me. I'm going to trust what Jesus did. He's already done the work. It's completed. It's finished. I'm just going to rest in what he has accomplished. That's the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And notice he says in verse 11, be diligent to enter that rest. Well, how do you, how do you enter it? Look back with me. Verse 19 says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Or chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering as rest, any of you may come, seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed, enter that rest. So there remains a rest for the people of God, a Sabbath. It's not one day out of seven. It's salvation. And we enter that rest through faith in Christ alone. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That is the message of the New Testament gospel. And that's what the Sabbath was pointing to year after year after year after year, week after week after week. I mean, it was one of the most powerful types in the Old Testament of the gospel. Because what is the Sabbath telling them to do? Don't work. Do not work on that day. Stop working. Rest. That's what the gospel tells us. Whenever you want to share the gospel with someone, you need to tell people, Stop trying to get God to love you. Stop trying to earn his favor. Just lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. You see, the Sabbath was a picture of Christ and the gospel through which we are saved. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you a Sabbath. You want a real Sabbath? Not the picture, not the sign. I'll give you the real one. Come to me, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble for heart, and you're going to find rest for your soul. So this is what we tell people. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, do you know what it means to become a Christian? You stop trying to earn your way into heaven. And you accept what Christ did on your behalf and you put all your trust in Him. See, salvation is as simple as turning to God. But the same motion, turning to something, means you've got to turn away from something else. Okay? If I'm facing this direction and I turn around and turn towards you, I've got to turn away from this wall, don't I? Salvation means turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ. Turning from sin's repentance, turning to Christ is faith. And that's what God calls you to today. Turn from your sin to Jesus. Stop trying to trust in anything you can do and know that it's already been done. Jesus said it's finished, right? The work is completed. So we must lay our deadly doing down and find rest and joy and satisfaction and wholeness and deliverance and salvation in every form through what He did. That's what these emblems are about. Every week we take the Lord's Supper. You know what we're doing? We're proclaiming the gospel over and over and over. It's not me, Lord. I don't have any righteousness to offer, but Jesus does, and I'm getting into His. I'm, I'm in Christ. He has the righteousness, and I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in His by proxy. And He trusts, or He promises to give that righteousness to all who trust Him. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So my question to you today is, are you enjoying Christ as your Sabbath? Are you? Are you really? If you are, rejoice today. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be miserable bondage if we somehow every week had to do enough to get God to love us and to accept us? 
and to approve of us. Thank God that it, He freely offers it by grace. There's a, a, there's a hymn written by a guy named Augustus Toplady who lived in the 1700s, and we know that hymn. Um, I'm going to read to you some lyrics from that, that hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Do you know this one? Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And then he goes on to say, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. He knew the truth of the gospel. I know some are here today that have never entered the Sabbath rest of Jesus Christ. Would you do it today? Would you just say to God, I'm tried, I'm tired of trying to be good enough to earn your favor, and I'm just going to trust in Jesus starting today to be my all in all. If you do that, there's life for you in him. There's salvation for you. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus many years, rejoice today that you are completely accepted in the beloved. If you go out and pray for four more hours today, God's not going to love you anymore. And if you don't have your prayer time tomorrow morning, he's not going to love you any less. It doesn't depend on us. It depends whether we are in Christ. Are you trusting him? And salvation in all of its fullness is yours. Lord, thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and for the Sabbath rest that we have entered into by faith. And let us never forget. Let us never so focus on these outward forms either resting on the seventh day or resting on the first day, let us never forget that all of it is fulfilled in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, may we just recall again and again and again, we are free in Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.